Good morning, everyone. And a good Lord's Day to all of you. Uh, it is a great, great pleasure uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, thank you for your warm welcome and the invitation to be here. Uh, what a delight it was to be at the ordination service on Friday and to be with you also in worship here today. Uh, as your pastor mentioned, um, quite a few years ago now, I was called to the work of church planting when I was Stephen's age, actually. And uh, so the work that you have uh, undertaken, church planting, and the work to which you have called Stephen has been much on my heart and mind and uh, in my prayers. And I hope to open God's word today with you uh, to a passage uh, that I hope will be of encouragement to you as you think about this work uh, ahead of you, this work of church planting. And I hope it will um, uh, encourage you in that regard and encourage your new pastor as well. Uh, so let's turn to God's word together. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 3. And as we'll soon find out, it's kind of a difficult chapter to uh, think about without some kind of context to it. Uh, so permit me a moment to sort of set the context for a scripture reading. Um, some of the exiles had returned from the Babylonian captivity by this time. Uh, but Nehemiah himself was still uh, in, the, in Persia, and he was serving the Persian king, whose name is Artaxerxes. We learn that in chapter 1. And uh, Nehemiah gets word that uh, Jerusalem is in a very sad state of disrepair. The wall has uh, crumbled and fallen down, and uh, people are in distress. Uh, they're vulnerable, vulnerable because of that. And uh, he... He spends months at prayer. He fasts and he prays for many days, um, seeking the Lord's direction. A beautiful penitential prayer is recorded in chapter 1. And having prayed about this and having the desire in his heart to go back and to build the walls of Jerusalem, uh, he approaches King Artaxerxes, who then uh, gives permission for him to return and to take up this work. He arrives in chapter 2, and we find him encouraging the community there to, to put themselves into this work, uh, to, to build this wall. And we find his encouragement in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Let's look at those verses first. I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste. Its gates are burned with fire. And come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. Now, having returned to the city and encouraged the folks there to take part in this project, chapter 3 is the narrative of this building and the, the beginning of that work, and all of those who did that work. And chapter 3 is a long chapter with a lot of hard-to-pronounce names and uh, names of different gates of the city and so on. It's the kind of chapter that you might be tempted to skip over uh, in your daily scripture reading, uh, but we can't do that. This is God's Word, and this chapter, as we'll see, I hope today, holds some very valuable lessons for us. So let's give our attention to chapter 3 of Nehemiah. And uh, I will read the whole chapter. 
Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They hung its doors and built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also, the sons of Hasana'ah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Meremoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Ba'ana, made repairs. And next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their lord. Moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Moronathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. And next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Heromoth, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Hattish, the son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Melchizedek, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section as well as the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it. They hung its doors with its bolts and bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beit HaKarim, made, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Shalon, the son of Kolhoseh, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. And after him, the Levites under Rechem, the son of Bani, made repairs. Next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half, half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their brethren under Bavai, the son of Hinadad, leader of the other half of the district of Keilah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And after him, Meremoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. And after him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. 
After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house. And after him, Benui, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower which projects from the king's upper house that was by the court of the prison. And after him, Pediah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethinim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate toward the east and on the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelmiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs in front of his dwelling. After him, Melchizedek, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethinim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. And we'll end our reading there. And after a scripture reading like that, I think I need a drink of water. Um, well, Today is an exciting day for this congregation. It's an exciting time for this church. I know that it is because um, you have undertaken a new church planting effort. Uh, it's exciting to see what the Lord will do. And you have called a new pastor, new church planter to oversee that work. He is newly ordained as of Friday. Still has that new pastor smell to him. Uh, Boy, it's a, it is an exciting time. But now a great deal of kingdom work lies ahead of you. And in that vein, I see a parallel between the work of the kingdom that you are undertaking, the work of building the church, the work of reaching out and planting a church. I see a parallel between that and the work of building up Jerusalem and its walls that we read about in the book of Nehemiah. Now in Nehemiah chapter 1, which we did not read, it's a very important chapter. In that chapter, we see that any great effort of kingdom work to build up and to bring about the peace and prosperity of Zion, that must begin with earnest, heartfelt prayer. And we see how that was laid on the heart of Nehemiah and how he prayed earnestly to the Lord. And we see the leadership and the prayer of one man sort of putting this whole project in motion. But what we see in this chapter that I've just read to you, chapter 3, is that kingdom work is a genuine effort of the body, of all of God's people. If someone asks you, who was it that built the wall back then when the exiles came home in the Bible? Who built the wall? You'll probably say Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one that built the wall. And you would be right, sort of. Nehemiah certainly had it laid upon his heart. He prayed about it. He organized it. He encouraged the work. He was there to oversee it. 
But chapter 3 of our text tells us who really built the wall. It was all of God's people. That was accomplished through the efforts of the whole body. And if someone asks you, well, who's planting that church up in Oklahoma City? I heard you guys are doing that. Who's, who's going to be doing that work? And you might say, well, Stephen, well, Pastor Mulder, excuse me. Uh, he's going to be doing that work. Right? And we'll, we'll pray for him. We'll cheer him on. But he's going to be doing that work. Again, let me encourage you uh, to maybe think differently about that. Yes, that is true. You have men who will lead that effort and who will pray over that effort and who will lead the charge, so to speak. And we need to pray that God will use Pastor Mulder's labors and his leadership. But in the big picture, that kingdom work is going to take place through the efforts of the whole body of Christ. That is how kingdom work gets done. I think the main point of this chapter is that we have a view here of common believers, men whose names you'll never find anywhere else in the Bible, names that are hard to pronounce, each of them with a small measurable task, and each one of them playing a part in the bigger picture of God's intentions to build his church. And I think what we see is that kingdom work is a genuine group effort of the body. So the book of Nehemiah is not about one man doing great things. Right? Some people think that is the case. But this is a book, and especially this is a chapter of that book, that is about common believers just doing the work that God puts right in front of them. And him using all of that work together to build the church and to bless his people. So we're going to look at a few details of this chapter and then try to draw a few uh, general points of application today. Now, as I said, uh, chapter 3 is preceded by uh, Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem. And he goes out in chapter 2 in in what's called the night survey. He goes out at nighttime and he looks at the walls to see what kind of condition they're in. And uh, after ascertaining the condition of the city and its walls... Uh, he meets with the people and especially the nobles and the officials in verse 17 and 18, and he encourages them to, to take up this work. I read those two verses earlier. And the end of verse 18 is a beautiful uh, uh, last sentence there in verse 18. It says, they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. They set their hands to do this good work. Um. There's a very nice literary connection between that and chapter 3 because the verb that's used here is the verb to strengthen. It's hazak in Hebrew. And literally it says they strengthen their hands to do this good work. And then all throughout chapter 3, whenever you see the word repaired, they repaired this, they repaired that. It's the same Hebrew verb. They strengthen this, they strengthen that. So first they strengthen their hands to the good work. And then they strengthen the wall and they strengthen the the gates and so on. So there's a beautiful connection uh, made between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And they strengthened their hands for this good work. They saw the goodness of it. They saw the purpose of it. They knew that it was for the growth and the blessing and the peace of the church, of themselves, their families, and all of God's people. They saw it was a good proposal, and therefore they were encouraged. They were strengthened. They had strong hands that were determined to do that work and to do the good. 
And from here on out in the book of Nehemiah, the focus will be on work, on action, on doing. Chapter 1 was all about prayer, right, that laid the groundwork, seeking God's blessing for the work ahead. But from here through the end of the book, it's about strong hands that are determined to do the good work. That's a beautiful and a precious thing. And that's a mindset that we need to, to have as God's people, that our hands might be encouraged and strengthened seeing the goodness of the work of the kingdom in front of us. That determination to work, to do that which is good. Right? Remember God at creation, he would create something and see that it was good. And he puts us in that position as well. He gives us work to do that we might see that that is good and that that might encourage us in that work. So um, that, that determination and that strengthening of the hands is such a needful and precious thing when it comes to the body of Christ doing the work of the kingdom. Now, when we come to chapter 3, which I've read uh, just a moment ago, like I said, it's a long list of names that are hard to pronounce, and uh, we tend to skip over passages like this. I think we, you know, we, we might read them out of a sense of duty, right? It is God's word, and I think a lot of commentators uh, sort of hurry through a chapter like this or treat it out of a sense of duty, but want to get on to, you know, the narratives later on in the book. Uh, we might get impatient with all the names of the people and the different gates and things like that. But these kinds of passages in the Old Testament... They are a genre of their own. They're referred to as the list genre. And there are many different texts that fall into that category. Passages like this with a long list of names that have something in common or contributed to some work together. Uh, genealogies fit into this category as well. The list of David's mighty men and the list of kings conquered by Joshua. Plenty of lists in the Bible, right? And they're very important. What are they? Why are they there? Well, they are like literary memorials. Okay, you know what a memorial is. You go to an old battlefield. There's a big stone there with people's names on it. That's a physical memorial. This is a literary memorial, right? To take these names of these people and what they did and uh, forever inscribe them in Scripture as a memorial to the work that they did and what God called them to do. And many of these lists are very poetic as well. They have a certain celebratory tone to them. Uh, the work is being celebrated in a text like this. And even this list has its own sort of cadence and repetitions uh, that, that give it that, that, um, that poetic feel to it. But most importantly, these lists are a medium for the conveyance of ideas. They teach us something. We are supposed to read this list and come away being taught and admonished something. Now let's think briefly about what some of those things are. Well, first of all, what we recognize most is that the people memorialized here are commoners. They're not notable people, but they're just common folks. But what makes their names important and why their names are inscripturated forever in God's word is because each one of them quietly and patiently did their own share of kingdom work. It's about one person doing one task and another person doing another task and then all of them together accomplishing some work of the kingdom that God had given them to do. So that's why we know their names, all this list of names. That's why they're inscripturated in God's word forever. 
There's something almost, uh, I would even say humorous about how the Bible records history. It, it, by its selection of material, shows us what really is important and what isn't important. Whose names are important and whose names aren't. Let me give you a great example. The beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, a new king arises over, over Egypt. A new pharaoh arises over Egypt. Moses doesn't name him. It'd be interesting to know his name. That would settle a lot of debate in the world of biblical studies if we knew the name of the pharaoh of the Exodus because we would be able to pinpoint it accuracy, accurately in terms of its date. We would want to know an informational, historical tidbit like that. But to Moses, he doesn't care. Pharaoh is pharaoh is pharaoh. They're all the same. This is just a new one. So he doesn't give his name. But we do know the names of the two Hebrew midwives that saved all of the baby children. Anybody remember them? You'll get a star for today if you do. Uh, Shifra and Pua will always have their names, but we'll never know the name of Pharaoh. Something like that is happening in this book, too, because in chapter 1, we're introduced to the great Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, if you read any other history book, any other history book, it will give chapter upon chapter about what he did, about the battles he fought, about the things he accomplished, what he was doing in the world, most powerful man in the world at this time. You wouldn't get any of that from the book of Nehemiah. It mentions his name, but it doesn't say anything that he did. So we don't know anything about Artaxerxes from this. But we do know that Melchizedek, the son of Rechab, repaired the refuse gate and hung its doors. We know that. The question is, why do we know that? Why do we know that? And it's because these people matter. What they were doing really matters. They have a meaningful place in the plan of God that is worth memorializing. And so they are memorialized because they quietly did the work of the kingdom. No matter what Artaxerxes was doing on the stage of history, this is the stuff that really matters what we see. And these are the people that really matter. So the Bible gives us a whole new way to think about history and what really matters in terms of what takes place in this world. It's the work of the kingdom that really matters. Now also think about this list, all the information that we're given about the people, their different families or where they're from or their occupations. Why are we given all that information? Well, it shows us something of the diversity of the body, doesn't it? Now, diversity is a very hackneyed uh, word in our times, and it's become a, it, an idol in our culture in some ways. But long before that ever happened or ever came about, uh, a good and beautiful and sanctified diversity uh, has always characterized the body of Christ. Um, that's why... The various people here are named by their families, their clans, their towns, and their professions. Why is all that information here? It's to show us what a diverse group of people God brought together. They're not all Israelite names either. <laughs> uh, this is a real diverse group. But they're God's people. And it shows us the diversity of the body. There are priests who took part in this work. There are goldsmiths who took part in this work. There's a perfumer, a guy who made perfume. He took part in this work too, building this wall. Merchants. One of my favorite verses is verse 12. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. 
It was a true family effort. And, you know, being a father, I can picture old Shalom out there with the blocks, building the wall, putting the bricks on top of each other. And in my mind's eye, I picture his little girls as being, you know, 14, 11, and 7, and saying, Daddy, Daddy, can we help? And, of course, he says, yes, come help. Kingdom work is family work, right? Families do kingdom work together. Um, even if he has to humor them, you know, and in doing some of that work, he has to accommodate them in their abilities. But uh, a, a genuine family effort with children involved in this work of the kingdom, that, that's a beautiful verse. And that's one of the reasons I wanted our scripture reading to be 1 Corinthians 12 is because uh, that's, a, that's a passage in which Paul makes the point that the diversity of the body is necessary. And even the weaker members are very necessary. And I think of that in terms of verse 12. Here's some weaker members of the body, probably some little girls, but they're necessary, right? And they helped do this work. And they are recorded here as well. Uh, so I think that's a beautiful illustration of what Paul says. How each member contributes to the whole, but each one must do his or her part. Now, another thing about this chapter is that it is a very orderly account. Uh, we, we can't really visualize this when we just read the chapter, but when you start at verse 1, where Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priest and they built the sheep gate. The whole chapter goes around the city wall counterclockwise, starts at the sheep gate, goes around counterclockwise, comes full circle all the way back to the sheep gate in the last verse, in verse 32, uh, where the sheep gate is mentioned. So each part of the wall as it goes around the city is spoken of. So there's a, a perfect literary structure to the account. And I think is that literary order that reflects the orderliness of the work itself. This was an orderly effort. This wasn't haphazard where everyone just kind of found a place and did what they wanted to do. It was organized. Each one had an appointed place. Each one had an appointed task, an appointed section of the wall to do their work. It was a work that was done decently and in order. So that's how we know that they were Presbyterians, right? Um, they, they had to have been. But there's something beautiful about a task done in an orderly way. Because kingdom work is orderly work. God's work is orderly work. Again, think about the creation account, uh, just on how the orderliness of the creation and the, the march of those days and the things that God created, all of his work has order. And that order is a beautiful thing. And I think we see something of that stamp here in Nehemiah chapter 3, that stamp of orderliness that we know underlies the work of God and the work of the kingdom. And so kingdom work is orderly work. And remember in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, uh, we saw how Nehemiah was exhorting the officials to strengthen their hands for this work. And it was likely Nehemiah and those officials who provided leadership and encouraged the people in their work and gave them each their place. And then you have this, this beautiful, orderly effort of kingdom work unfold in chapter 3. Now let's think of this chapter in all of its details 
in terms of the big picture of redemptive history. God's plan and God's purpose to build his church. And in this case, to restore his church. Right? He had promised this for, for ages and ages. God's covenant promise will always stand. He will always have a people in this world. He proposes to build that people and establish them in the world. He's determined to save them and not let the gates of hell prevail against his people. He's going to bring them back from captivity, reestablish them, promise them a future. And this would be the, uh, the, the precursor to the coming of the Messiah. And all of these great things, surely, that great narrative of redemption throughout all of history, that must have been in their minds as they started rebuilding this wall and rebuilding the city. It must have been in their minds that this is God's work. This is part of God's promise. Now, all of that, that great plan of God, all of that touches down and becomes reality in their lives by working on this stretch of the wall, by working on this particular gate, by patiently lifting stones and stacking them on one atop of another in a very measurable task. Measurable indeed. Look at verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it. They hung its doors with its bolts and bars and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. A thousand cubits. It's about 1,500 feet. And that, that is what the big picture of God's plan came down to in the experience of Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa. 1,500 feet of the wall. That was their part. That was their place in the big picture. What I see in this chapter is how the immeasurable comes down to what is measurable. The immeasurable is God's promises, his plans, the big picture of redemptive history and his promise to build the church. But all of that, we are not just spectators to that. That's not just something that's too big for us to kind of imagine and see. All of that in the life of the believer comes down to something measurable, something right in front of us, whatever task the Lord puts in front of you as part of the work of the kingdom. It may be a very humble task, but it really is part of something big and something glorious. So one of the questions I want to ask you today is, what does that look like for you in your life? As a member of the body of Christ, in the big picture of our God's intentions to build the church and to bless his people, what is your measurable task? It may not be a great thing. In fact, it might be a very humble task. But whatever it is, it defines your place within an immeasurable and glorious plan that Christ has to build his church. I won't be building a wall, but it might be something like partnering up with Pastor Steve and knocking on some doors. It might be sharing the gospel with your neighbor, bringing your neighbor to church. It might be taking a meal to a shut-in in the church or one of your neighbors, giving them a word of encouragement from the scriptures. Any number of things. There are a thousand different ways from day to day that each member of the body can play their own part 
in God's promise to build up his church and to bless his people. Now, there is uh, one discordant note in this chapter. And we find that in verse 5. It says, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. The Hebrew text literally says they didn't put their necks into the work. And it uses the plural lords. Uh, So there's some discussion as to whether that plural is a superlative, whether it refers to the Lord uh, as, as the New King James translation takes it, the work of their Lord. Or lords as in their overseers, you know, the ones overseeing the work. But in either way, the point is they didn't put their necks into the work. In other words, they they weren't into it. They thought somebody else is going to do this, surely. Um, They're called nobles from Tekoa. You remember Tekoa was the hometown of uh, the prophet Amos. But it does mention that they were nobles. So maybe this is a little hint of pride. You know, maybe these nobles thought perhaps they were maybe above that kind of physical labor uh, to build the wall. And they thought somebody beneath them would take care of all this physical labor. Because um, everywhere else in this chapter, uh, it seems like a picture of happy cooperation, doesn't it? Except for that one, that one verse. So maybe verse 5 stands as a warning and a reminder of how pride can hinder the work of the kingdom. And we're reminded then that kingdom work is sometimes work where you have to get your hands dirty, uh, literally and figuratively. There are humble tasks that need, to be, be, that need to be done, and there are tasks that need to be done that maybe no one will ever see you doing, right? And you won't get credit for them. They might not be trumpeted from the heights of the New Jerusalem, what you have done. And some of kingdom work is very much like that. Scripture tells us to take the path of humble service. And that is what we see here in this chapter. Uh, Many of God's people taking the path of humble service. And think of Christ, of course, as the example, the paradigm of humbly serving others. But I think that verse, um, verse 5, reminds us uh, that that pride is detrimental. Uh, Pride, Whether it was pride or apathy, who knows what it was. Uh, But No one in the body should be that person, right, to stand aside and not put their neck to the work, as the passage says, uh, thinking someone else will do it, or maybe that work is beneath them. Uh, We need to remember that kingdom work will take time, it will take energy, and it will take sacrifice. One of the patterns that I find interesting in this text also is how many of the different people are said to have built the wall right in front of their own house. Uh, We find that in several verses, like verse 23, verse 28, verse 30, and a few other places too. He built the wall in front of his house. Maybe it's convenient. I'm already here. I'll just build this section. Maybe it shows a little self-interest. I want this part of the wall to be the strongest part. It's in front of my house, right? But I am struck by, I think, a positive point that we can see from this. What do the walls of the city represent? It represents the the peace and the safety of the church. And whenever these men were working on the wall in front of their house, we are reminded that whenever we work for the peace and the safety of the church, we are working for the peace and the safety 
of our own homes and our own families. Right? That's what they were doing. That's a, that had to have been a strong motive to them because this wall is going to surround their house, their kids. And when we think of kingdom work too, I think we should think of it that way as well. When we build the kingdom of God, when we do the, the work of the kingdom, we are seeing the church of Christ grow and strengthen and become more beautiful and sanctified and reformed. And that is the place where our families are going to be blessed, where our children will be blessed. So when we do kingdom work, uh, we are blessing our families. It's not as though we have to choose. Should I do something for my family or something for the kingdom? When you do something for the kingdom, when the church is blessed and strengthened, you are blessing and strengthening your family too. So I think that's, that's something that we need to see. And verse 12 kind of makes that point. When the guy's daughters were out there with him, you know, it was, it was family work because it would bless their family ultimately. Um, <clears throat> a few years ago, I had the uh, opportunity uh, to visit China and to teach uh, in China. And while I was there, I, um, I jotted some, I keep a journal sometimes and jot down some thoughts from time to time. And uh, I had a chance to visit the Great Wall of China when I was there. And um, I had some thoughts about the Great Wall, and I think they might be fruitful in, in drawing some biblical comparisons between two different walls, uh, the Great Wall of China and Nehemiah's Wall. So if you'll indulge me for just a moment. Um, let me share with you a few thoughts that I had about the Great Wall of China. And as I, just as I wrote in my journal, uh, I expressed how I thought about how so many men for so long a time had the sole purpose in life to carry stones up a mountain in order to build it. And I said, while I was walking on the wall, I was saddened by the thought of such an existence and wondered what it must have felt like. Right? That was their whole purpose in life, uh, to build that wall. And I go on to say, those men build a great wall to keep the Huns out, but they hedge themselves in. And the life they sought to protect was probably worse than the one they feared. Right? And I go on to talk about how they were sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. It was either face the Huns, not build the wall and face the Huns, or not build, not build the wall and face their taskmasters, right, who... who who knows, maybe we're, they were worse than the Huns. Though. And just uh, thinking those thoughts uh, kind of got me to think about the differences between that and Nehemiah's wall. Because what I was thinking about as I walked on the Great Wall of China was all those nameless faces, all those anonymous laborers who built that wall, who worked on that wall and probably died doing it. But their wall is still standing. But every one of them died in obscurity. We don't know their names. There's no monument to them. Who knows their names? Nehemiah's wall is no longer standing. I mean, that's the stuff of archaeology now. But we know everyone's name who built it. We know everyone's name who built it. You see, I don't think in chapter 3 the wall is the main thing. It's the people who matter. It's the people that God blessed and protected to do this work. And it's their service to him that is inscripturated forever. It's their service to him that echoes in eternity. If the wall was the main thing, then God would have preserved the wall. The wall would still be standing. But it's not. But the people's names are still here. 
So Nehemiah 3 is not really about a wall, after all. It's about God's people serving him, about common people serving the Lord however they can. We see each one had a name, each one had a task, and God established the work of their hands because they did it for his glory. And all of this makes Nehemiah's wall the greater wall. Even though it's no longer standing, we still have this memorial and know all the names of God's people who built it. And so I draw this conclusion, and that is that in kingdom work, we may not see our efforts stand throughout the generations, like Nehemiah's wall. But in the truest sense, that work does stand, and it stands forever because it's done for the glory of God. And so too with whatever labors you offer for Christ and his kingdom. In God's providence, Nehemiah's wall was destroyed again centuries later, But this list of people that we find here, these people whom God loved and whom God blessed, who served him with a whole heart, the people abide forever. And we have their names inscripturated in God's word. I think that should be a great encouragement to us and to all of you. Because even our feeble efforts to serve Christ matter. They matter. Like nothing else in this world, they matter. Now, one last comparison suggests itself. As I mentioned, as I was uh, reflecting on the Great Wall of China, um, the motivation for building it is something that we can reflect on as well. When they built the Great Wall of China, they had one motive only, and that was fear. They were afraid of the people on the other side. And the people who built the wall were afraid of their taskmasters on this side and the enemy on that side. And they built this wall out of fear. Nehemiah's motives and the motives of these people are far different. Nehemiah's motives we see beautifully expressed in his prayer in chapter 1. The glory of God and the good of his people, that's what motivated him. And then the people were motivated by him seeing the goodness of this work because it was for the good of God's people and the growth of his kingdom. They knew why they were doing this and it was the right motive. So they set about the task with the right motives for kingdom work, for the glory of God and the good of his people. The motive was not fear. Men will build great things out of fear. The motive was not pride. Men will build great things out of pride, too. The motive was not gain. Men will build great things out of gain. But the motive for this was the glory of God and the good of his people. Now, friends, if these are our motives in the work of the kingdom, then we too can expect God's blessings. These motives are simple and selfless. And the only motives that can give our work meaning and lasting value. So, Nehemiah 3 holds some valuable lessons uh, for all of us. And for all of you, as you undertake your own building project, so to speak, in the work of church planting. And I would say this, first of all, begin with prayer and let the work continue earnestly with prayer. This is where Nehemiah began in chapter one before doing anything else, before even lifting one stone. They began with earnest prayer for God's blessing. But secondly, pray that your hands would be strengthened for this good work. Realize the goodness and the eternal value of doing a work like this outreach and church planting this is the kind of thing that matters in this world and pray for the strength 
that is equal to that task. Also, remember that kingdom work is the work of the body. You have men to organize and to oversee that work, but each member has a task, and each member has a gift to do that task. So I want to ask you again, what is your task? Pray about that. And talk to your elders, talk to your pastors about that. What is your measurable role in God's immeasurable plan? It may not be big, but it is part of a big picture. It may be a humble or simple way to serve him, but if it is for the glory of Christ and for the good of his people, then it has eternal importance, whatever it is. And your name might not be inscripturated forever as those uh, who we find in Nehemiah 3, but you know that Christ knows all of his sheep by name, and he will not forget you. And finally, resolve to have no other motive than the glory of Christ and the good of God's people. That's the only motive uh, that we can bring with us to the work of the kingdom. And may our God establish the work of your hands for his great name's sake. I will be praying for you and with you that your efforts to build the kingdom of Christ through church planting will be a reflection of what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 3. And that is an effort of the body strengthened by the spirit through prayer with each member doing his or her part to build the church of Christ for his glory alone. Amen. Well, let's take up our Psalters and let's turn to Psalm 122, Selection A. And you'll notice all the Psalms that we sang today had something to do with building a wall. 48, 51, even the end of 51, there is the prayer that he would build the wall of Jerusalem. 122, Selection A, um, I want to draw your attention, first of all, to stanza three, where it says, for Jerusalem's well-being, intercede and pray for peace. So there is a command of scripture for us to pray for the well-being and the peace of Zion, that it should be, it should be our heart's desire to see the peace and the prosperity of the church. In other words, our hands should be strengthened to that good work, to put it in the terms of Nehemiah. So there we go. We are urged to pray. But then in stanza four, um, it says, I will say, may peace be with you for my friends and brothers sake for the Lord's house, our God's temple. This my purpose I will make. This my purpose I will make. Your well-being, your well-being I will seek with all my heart. So we move from prayer to purpose. Right? We move from prayer to the strengthening of the hands for the good work. And I think that's what we see in Nehemiah and what we pray for as we sing this psalm together. So let's stand to sing 122a. <laughs> 